Welcome to our first evening's Dharma talk. Uh, it feels like, uh, uh, personally, uh, the last uh, 24 hours feel almost like a week or a month somehow, subjectively. Um, um, yesterday, a month ago. Anyway, <laughs> so uh, welcome. And um, as is the nature of Dharma talks, uh, it's really okay to remember nothing and to just sort of let the words, the sounds pass through you. Uh, if you care to reflect on anything uh, or even take notes, if that's useful, that's all right, at least with me. Um, and always the deep question, which I'll be exploring actually in the talk, is to what end? Are we listening to the end of mere entertainment, uh, distraction, uh, some form of, um, Know, caught up in the project of improving ourselves uh, in a way that's problematic? Or are we listening? In the spirit, I hope that uh, people listen to the Buddha and uh, those who came after him when they offered uh, ways of looking more closely at our own experience, ways of experiencing our experience, including from the bottom up and the inside out, in ways that are helpful. Uh, using vipassana, which means insight, in the service of relaxing uh, the tight grip of the contracted self, relaxing tension and pressure, and opening increasingly into that which brings uh, happiness and love and wisdom to us and to other people. Is that the purpose? So I, I invite you into the kind of purposes here this evening that will be helpful to you. In that spirit, what I'd like to do is offer a kind of frame of reference for this retreat, at least as I see it, and then uh, talk about three kinds of practice that I think are really central, and use one of them as an illustration of how it can be helpful to move back and forth from a perspective that's very close to experience. Sometimes it's called the first-person perspective of subjectivity, and then as it's useful, uh, move out into what is called the third-person perspective or some understanding of what's actually happening in the body, in the body, that is the basis of the experience that we're having. And I'm going to apply that uh, combination of view, that, if you will, truly embodied view to one practice in particular or one aspect of that practice in particular, practice being mindfulness. Okay, so here we go. Uh, I like to think sometimes about uh, the unbroken line, really, from the Buddha himself 2,500 years ago uh, and us today. People, much like us, exploring suffering and exploring happiness in an environment, a setting, a society, a place very different from our own today. As you most likely know, as a relatively young man toward mid to late 20s, as best we know, the Buddha set forth to uh, explore uh, a question that gripped him. What were the causes of suffering and its end? And he engaged progressively practices of a growing refinement and penetration and intensity uh, into his own experience until he came to, in, in my view, 
uh, that uh, possibility, which is fundamentally available to us all, of utter liberation, utter freedom from um, craving and clinging and the suffering that results. So he engaged his, his mind. At much the same time, in what historians call the axial age, around 2,500 years ago, Aristotle and other scientists in the Mediterranean and in uh, Egypt and uh, China and, and in Africa and other parts of the world were really looking at not so much our experience from the inside out, but physical reality from the outside in. What causes a ball to roll down a plane? What happens uh, if you um, toss something into water? Why does it splash? Questions like this. So we have these two preoccupations. We have uh, a a psychological, experiential, uh, oriented exploration, one form of knowing. And simultaneously, around that same time, we have the development of what is the foundation now, 2,500 years later, of what we call science, in which people were examining physical reality from the outside in. Both are forms of knowing. It's interesting that the root of the word for science is knowing. Similarly, the root of the word Buddha, or Bhutto, is knowing. The Buddha is the one who knows. In a sense, in a way, the Buddha is the scientist. So, the Buddha did not have an MRI. He did not have access to modern understanding of medicine and biology. He was engaging experience directly. He (coughs) routinely accepted the existence of a physical reality, uh, stuff out there. He was a farmer. He lived in an agrarian culture. He was very engaged with what actually helped the crops to grow. Uh, But past that, he was not terribly interested in the material world. He was extremely interested in the subjective experiential world. That was his preoccupation. Now though, 2,500 years later, we've learned a few things. We've learned quite a lot actually about um, the physical universe and that portion of the physical universe, which is this body, this very body. And we've come to realize the ways in which the body makes the mind. Now, it's not only the body that makes the mind. There certainly are other causes inside ordinary reality that make the body, including the effects of culture. Still, these other causes occur inside what is called the natural frame of ordinary reality, which includes a lot of weird stuff. Quarks, black holes, spooky action at a distance, strange things, but it's considered to be um, all the phenomena in ordinary reality are due to natural, not supernatural or transcendental causes. Still, whatever is true about the other causes that help make the mind moment to moment to moment that are outside the body, the final common pathway of all the causes that come together to make this moment of experience run right between our ears. This is a way of embedding mind in life. People routinely practice mindfulness of the body. 
yet often ignore the implications, really, that we are body full of mind. Perhaps something meaningfully distinct from natural causes, such as supernatural factors or a transcendental X factor, is necessarily involved with the experiences of animals with nervous systems or with human consciousness, just human consciousness perhaps, as some claim, distinct from non-human animals. Perhaps, and I'm naming that possibility, which is a very important possibility for many people. I'm not arguing for it, I'm simply naming it. Having named it, whatever might be meaningful about a transcendental, the divine, if you will, or the unconditioned, as the Buddha spoke of it, whatever might be true about that, what is very clear based in modern science and research on humans and on non-human animals is that our existent but immaterial, intangible experiences, the hearing of a sound, the seeing of a sight, the recalling of a memory, our loving, our sorrowing, our hoping, our dreaming, all of those intangible experiences are tightly correlated with underlying very tangible, very material neural structures and processes. And those neural structures and processes are themselves entwined with other physical uh, systems in the body and with nature and biology and by extension with physical reality altogether. Inside the natural frame, all mental events are based on ephemeral coalitions of synapses. Coalescing, coming together, self-organizing, kind of like eddies in a stream down the river, a swirling pattern of organizing of synapses. They last for typically a few seconds at most. And then these coalitions of the physical basis of our swirling thoughts and feelings eddying along in their way in the streaming of consciousness, those coalitions, physical coalitions that come together, then disperse out into fertile noise in terms of underlying neural activity. We have mind and matter interdependently occurring, affecting each other. As Dan Siegel puts it, the mind uses the brain to make the mind. In other kinds of ways, the brain uses the mind, flows of experience, to shape and regulate itself. Now, that's about the hardest core stuff I'm going to do tonight. Got a little frame here. Mind and body, experience, nervous system. We have this, for me, two interdependent aspects mental events, experiences flowing, underlying physical activity, tightly correlating, occurring together. It's an interdependent, unified process with two meaningfully distinct aspects. We can explore this mind-body process from the inside out, subjectively, as the Buddha did. And also, we can explore it from the outside in, from a third-person perspective, objectively as a neurologist or a psychiatrist might, or as we can ourselves actually 
with just a little bit of knowledge about what in the world is going on inside the hardware, under the hood, in the three pounds of tofu-like tissue inside the coconut. <laughs> so either way we explore the, the mind-body process, from the inside out or the outside in, there's the same fundamental matter of an empirically guided investigation, uh, an observing, a knowing. Now, we can know for its own sake about the body-mind process, science for its own sake, and we can observe and know our own experience for, an empir- for a pragmatic purpose. In other words, science in the service of something. The Buddha's primary focus was pragmatic. He was interested in what was true. He was more interested in what was helpful. What's helpful? It was a knowing that he engaged that was um, aimed at disengaging from the causes of suffering and encouraging the causes of that highest happiness, quote unquote, which is peace. That's our endeavor here. A pragmatic interest in how can we understand and how can we influence the flow of experience and the underlying basis of it in this body in ways that are um, helpful to us in terms of relieving suffering and opening increasingly into and stabilizing increasingly into um, a deep sense of inner strength and inner peace. Now, this internally directed inquiry and exploration does not mean ignoring the importance of improving things out there in the world. That's certainly very important. And the Buddha spoke to that, especially in terms of our relationships. And he actually had something to say in the record that survives about the proper conduct of leaders. But on the whole, he is personal practice and his teachings were internally focused and that's how we'll engage this retreat. So in this kind of pragmatic spirit of what helps, what can we observe? What can we see directly, directly in the flow of our experience and as best we can uh, know in the underlying flow from a third person perspective of what's actually happening in the body, what's actually happening in this body as we experience things. At this point, I'd I'd like to introduce a metaphor that has been really useful for me personally in my practice and in just kind of recognizing what's true. And it's a metaphor that I used a little bit ago. Eddies in the stream. Swirling together and then coming apart. An eddy is like a whirlpool. Have you ever been in a river? You see these patterns swirling together. You can have eddies of thought. You can kind of observe as the mind gets quieter, this eddy coming together of a point of view about something. And then... um, coalescing and organizing and stabilizing and persisting for a while and then kind of spreads apart. 
And you can, in your own awareness, observe eddies of thought interacting with eddies of feeling, swirling together and then swirling apart. Eddies within eddies within eddies. Out there in physical reality, we can see eddies as well. We can see clouds forming. We can see people uh, coalescing around moving outside a door or moving through a door. Uh, We can see eddies at the level of a single turkey or all the way scaled up to a Milky Way galaxy. Eddies in the stream of reality. And it's interesting to observe that eddies of experience and eddies of matter have the same underlying nature. They're transient. They're made up of parts. They arise dependently. And they are therefore empty in the quote-unquote sense, the technical sense. They exist, but they're empty of absolute um, independent existence. And as we recognize that, as we start recognizing increasingly that our own life is a eddy in the stream, that um, movements of various kinds or different kinds of eddies, reactions to different things or eddies, uh, things that occur uh, in groups of people or in relationships or swirling patterns. As we recognize that, we start recognizing more and more clearly what the Buddha taught about the uh, ways in which since all eddies are impermanent, they're not worth clinging to. That if we do cling to them, and if we identify with them, that leads to suffering and harm for ourselves and for other people. All eddies disperse eventually. As the Buddha taught, that which is subject to arising is also subject to passing away. And as we deepen our felt recognition, things start out conceptually often, and that's perfectly okay. The Buddha, as best we can gather from the surviving written record of his teachings, was very willing to draw distinctions conceptually and to point things out. Um, But the point of that is felt recognition, is some kind of release, some kind of knowing from the inside out that really helps. And as we deepen in our recognition of the transience, the insubstantiality, the emptiness of all of our experiences that helps us become disenchanted of them. Not disgusted by them or against them, but rather waking up from the spell that leads us to turn them into things, our experiences, essentialize them, and hold on to them and over-control them. I kind of have a saying to myself, love the eddy, be the stream. So now I'd like to apply some of this highfalutin stuff to practice. And I love that the Buddha was extremely interested in practice. Personally, I think of myself as a methods guy. I'm interested in what's, what is. I just am blown away routinely by um, just learning more and more about um, what is. 
and as a longtime therapist and longtime personal practitioner and a longtime sufferer, uh, I'm, I'm really interested in practice. And it seems to me that that was the Buddha's focus as well. Practice. What is practice? How do we practice? What's helpful? I think of one way to look at practice or consider it is like a three-legged stool. Three-legged stool of practice. And um, I think of those legs of the stool as uh, in Pali, the language of early Buddhism, metta, sati, and bhavana. Metta uh, means loving kindness. More generally, I'm using it here as a as a sense of warm-heartedness, compassion, love, self-compassion, uh, warm-heartedness aimed at oneself and warm-heartedness aimed at others. That to me is an essential element of practice, to bring our whole heart to it. It's interesting that there's a recurring uh, description in the Pali Canon, Pali the language of early Buddhism, um, that a, a dedicated practitioner is one who is ardent, heartfelt and enthusiastic, ardent, resolute, diligent, and mindful. Ardent, heartfelt, that leg of the stool. Second leg of the stool, sati, is mindfulness. And mindfulness, as you may know, the the root of that word is memory. It's a quality of recollectedness, sustained present moment awareness. And the third leg of the stool, in my view, see for yourself, as the Buddha said, what you find useful here, The third leg of the stool is bhavana, cultivation, learning. So we have a warm-heartedness, and we have sustained present moment awareness, and we have healing and growing and developing along the way. All three legs of the stool are important. For some people, their three-legged stool seems more like a pogo stick. They've got one leg. Right? Perhaps they're a very mindful, excellent meditator, but their heart is not very open. There's not that much that's passionate or juicy or enthusiastic or um, um, loving in their practice. Or perhaps a different person might be, have a really loving heart and yet not really be growing, not cultivating, not developing, not healing over time. So all are important, all three. They work together. And as we practice here, you might look to your own practice from time to time, especially if it starts feeling a little stuck. And just kind of check. Huh, metta, question mark. Sati, question mark. Bhavana, question mark. I put metta first because I think in some ways developmentally, I have a background in developmental psychology with children. Uh, I think a kind of warmth comes first, actually. Things happen. If we lack that warmth, why be mindful? If we lack that sense of being for ourselves or being an ally to ourselves or friend to ourselves, or if we lack that sense of caring for other people, why pay attention? So there's something kind of fundamental about that warmth. I put it first. I also put it first as a deliberate kind of corrective, I think, for the tendency in many contemplative traditions um, to, in a way, overvalue a kind of austere, uh, somewhat detached, observing, analytic understanding of experience. And I I think, for me, it's useful. It's been meaningful, personally, to put 
uh, warm-heartedness first. I also want to uh, emphasize or point to uh, the importance of bhavana, of cultivation, of development. How do we heal? How do we release increasingly over time? How do we develop traits of mindfulness, traits of self-compassion, traits of commitment to social justice, traits of skillfulness with other people, traits of skillfulness with our own mind? How do we develop these things? Um, in my observation, long-time practitioner, I started meditating in 1974, I've, I've been really struck in both the um, sp- spiritual world, I've practiced in different traditions, including outside Buddhism, and I'm routinely struck also in the world of the helping professions, uh, coaching, therapy, and so forth, how much attention there is on having various states of mind, various experiences, thoughts, sensations, attitudes, intentions. And yet there's very little systematic attention to, well, how do we help those experiences leave lasting beneficial traces behind in the body? Without which, by definition, there is no growth, no healing, no learning. And meanwhile, as you may know, the brain has what's called a negativity bias, so that our moments of irritation or frustration or hurt or loss uh, or tension are fairly rapidly internalized and they leave residues behind in the body. So interestingly, if we tilt deliberately toward cultivation in healthy ways, we just kind of level the playing field. That's the result of biological evolution. There's a quotation in the Dhammapada that's been very meaningful to me over the years. You might reflect on it here in this retreat. It's actually very hopeful. Quotation runs, think not lightly of good, saying, it will not come to me. Drop by drop is the water pot filled. Likewise, the wise one, gathering it little by little, fills oneself with good. There's another quotation that's um, somewhat related. It's from the Ituvutaka, Ituvitaka, Ituvutaka. Um, I'm probably mispronouncing that. Train yourself in doing good that lasts and brings happiness. Cultivate generosity, a life of peace, and a mind of boundless love. Now, cultivation does not mean getting attached to our experiences. One of the interesting explorations on retreat is to um, be really present in the moment, increasingly choicelessly, increasingly not trying to influence the stream of consciousness, more and more open receptively, while from time to time coming into a kind of intimacy with experience and helping it sink in. Helping a realization land, helping an intention land, helping certain ways of being increasingly establish themselves in us. It's a fine art in which we're in the present moment letting go while 
receiving into ourself and cultivating the good that lasts. So I'd like to apply this kind of territory to a little experiential practice with you as an illustration of what could be called a neurodharma approach, a kind of integrated mind-body approach to practice that takes into account and weaves together some practical fruits of both a first-person and a third-person perspective and applying that to mindfulness. So I'd like to talk a little bit about some of the neural factors of sustained present moment awareness. Um, I'll just go here. Here we go. So, um, you're probably aware of this experience, right? Breath, breath, breath. Lunch. How can I get there earlier? Why are there so many people in line? Why do they only have salad? Breath, breath, breath. Well, technically, when we kind of go into a wandering mind, we tend to engage what are called the, what's called the default mode network, more or less toward the back of the midline of the cortex and spreading out from there, ballpark. On the other hand, when we're involved in task-oriented doing, planning, thinking, um, putting ourselves in certain situations in the future, reflecting on the past, we tend to engage networks more in the midline toward the front of the midline. In either case, we're often doing what's called mental time travel. Or, as I would put it, we're in the simulator. We're in the simulator, engaged in task-oriented doing, drawing on the frontal portions of those midline networks, or we're just in the ruminator. <laughs> in ways we're just kind of spinning out, lost in thought. Uh, research shows that if you ping people randomly throughout the day, on average about um, half the time people's minds are wandering. And uh, for different individuals, the more that the mind tends to wander, the more that it tends to be saturated with negative material. Anxiety, irritation, hurts, resentments, that case we make about against other people. In some ways, meditation is a kind of training in recognizing when we're in the simulator and coming out of the simulator through that recognition back into the present moment. Neurologically, physically, when we drop into the present moment, we tend to disengage activity or reduce activity in these midline networks and increase activity in networks on the sides of the brain, especially in the right side, for right-handed people, which is no surprise because the right hemisphere for right-handed people is involved in holistic gestalt processing rather than sequential processing, more of the midline networks. And researchers have found that when people are doing this midline-based activation, there's often a strong sense of self. Me, myself, and I. Me as a character in our mini-movies, or I as sort of a presumed subject of the mini-movies running in the simulator. 
And with that sense of I, with self, often there's an increased sense of suffering. On the other hand, when people uh, come more into the present moment and engage these lateral networks more, which disengage activity from the midline networks, the sense of self reduces. People come in more into the suchness of the present moment, not in the future, not in the past, not conceptualizing, just here, as it is now. So from a kind of a fairly practical standpoint, the opportunity for us is to be able to move back and forth between these two, in a sense, ways of being, as it is useful. The development of these midline networks that enable mental time travel are an incredible neurological development over the course of evolution. Um, Our nearest relatives, uh, the primate relatives, chimpanzees, bonobos, as best we can tell, other close cousins, like dogs, let's say, are trapped in the present, in a sense. They're in the present, for better or worse. Uh, Humans, for better or worse, are able to worry about the future and regret the past. Thanks, Mother Nature. Um, So the problem is, of course, since, as the saying has it, neurons that fire together wire together, we live in a culture that is an intense training in midline cortical activity, either in task-oriented doing or in entertainments of various kinds. And neurons that fire together wire together through conventional education, or conventional jobs, modern media culture. We repeatedly stimulate these underlying networks. We strengthen them. And we get trapped in them. And they exercise a kind of hegemony over the empire of the being. They pull us out of present moment awareness back into familiar patterns or habits of running little mini-movies. So from a practical standpoint, for most of us, me included, it's really good to train in the activation of these lateral networks so that we are more able to stabilize present moment awareness. So as an illustration, I'm going to tell you some ways to do that right now. And we'll do it for a few minutes and then I'll wrap up. So one of the things that draws us into present moment awareness and stimulates these neural networks which support it is a sense of things as a whole. So for example, the sense of the body as a whole draws, engages these lateral networks and helps us drop into the present moment. A sense of a panoramic perspective, a bird's eye view, or a sense of spaciousness of experience also engages these lateral networks. And a third thing that engages them is surprise. Or things like delight that bring us right into the present moment. Really close to the front edge of now. Being alert. Something has happened and it's letting go of it as fast as it arises. That also tends to engage these lateral networks and support present moment awareness. And all three of these are things we can engage ourselves as factors that have an embodied basis that support our pragmatic undertaking here to 
um, steady the mind and help it become increasingly in the present so that we can develop over time liberating insight. So you want to try it right now? And you're very welcome, of course, to try this in the future. I'll offer a few suggestions for about five minutes or so. And then um, I'll, I'll close uh, by 8.15. All right. So if you're comfortable being aware of breathing, you might be aware of the sense of breathing in one part of your body, like the chest or torso. If you'd rather just not be aware of breathing per se, uh, just your torso altogether, sense of your torso, your chest. Recognizing that in the torso are many sensations and there can be a sense of them as a whole. And as you like, you can start to expand that sense of the body as a whole to include more and more of your body. Be aware of how attention tends to flit from one sensation to another, foregrounding one after another, or one sensation after another, different parts of the body moves into the foreground of attention. It's really interesting to explore widening the field of attention to include the body as a whole, abiding increasingly as a whole body breathing. It's very normal for the sense of the whole to crumble. To see if you can establish it over time increasingly. All the sensations of the body <coughs> as a single gestalt, as a 
one single percept. Continuously. From sensations, if you like, you can include sounds. And widening further to experience as a whole, the sense of vastness, spaciousness, edgelessness, And helping yourself last, stabilize increasingly, return increasingly to the present. Something is happening and it's letting go as quickly as it happens. Whoosh. Abiding as the whole of experience, now, now, now. So much of our practice to finish up is like an experiment. We try things. I really invite you to try that sense of awareness of the whole body as a single gestalt, and then a kind of a panoramic, edgeless um, sense of experience as a whole, coming really close to the emergent edge of each moment as it whooshes right past us continuously. Spoke of many things tonight. Feel very free for just a wash away.
you have any interest in this, uh, the talk will be recorded. And I'd like to leave you with uh, quotations from some teachers, including Bill Murray. Francis Bacon, the great scientist many centuries ago, said, we have only this moment sparkling like a star in our hand and melting like a snowflake. We have only this moment sparkling like a star in our hand and melting like a snowflake. Or Isa, the great haiku poet. On a branch floating down river, a cricket singing. On a branch floating down river, a cricket singing. Or that great Dharma teacher, Bill Murray. I realized the more fun I had, the better I did. Sometimes I think we can be very somber and grim on retreat. And one of the things that also, neurologically, I'll spare you the details, brings us right into the present moment and helps us gain, uh, in terms of neuroplasticity from our experiences, is playfulness. A playfulness, a delight. Beginner's mind, Zen mind, as Suzuki Roshi put it. And so to finish, a poem from William Stafford titled, You Reading This, Be Ready, or Listening. Starting here, what do you want to remember? How sunlight creeps along a shining floor? What scent of old wood hovers? What softened sound from outside fills the air? Will you ever bring a better gift for the world than the breathing respect that you carry wherever you go right now? Are you waiting for time to show you some better thoughts? When you turn around, starting here, lift this new glimpse that you found. Carry into evening all that you want from this day. This interval you spent reading or hearing this, keep it for life. What can anyone give you greater than now? Starting here, right in this room, when you turn around. Truly, from my heart, I want to thank you for your practice. for our own sake and that of this um, fragile world. May we practice, may we respect practice, may we respect practice in others, may we sustain our own practice, ardent, resolute, diligent, and mindful. Thank you very much for your attention. And now we'll have some walking meditation. <laughs>